You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, it's been an interesting couple of days. My wife went away uh, on a little bit of a trip with Henry, and I thought, I'm going to sleep through the night. This is going to be great. My other kids are like, no, Father, we'll fill the void. <laughs> Got woken up in the middle of the night to, Daddy, there are snakes on my back. No, there are not, sweetheart. They're there. Let's go back to bed. Um, and then this morning, Daddy, I had a dream about snakes. I know. <laughs> yeah. So. Ah, uh, yes, good fun with children. Um, we are going to be continuing in our, um, our study in found of foundations. We've been going through that thematically through this year, and we've begun to go through the book of Genesis as the foundational book for all of Scripture. Uh, we took a break last week from Genesis, though, to talk about uh, Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema, and the Shema being, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. Out of Mark 12, Jesus continues after this, and it says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your soul, with all your spirit, with all your strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the Shema. This is that idea of you need to hear, O Israel. It's the call to all of us. We need to hear what God is saying in our lives. Are we listening? Are we attentive? Or are we caught up in what the busyness is? Are we caught up in what culture is shouting us? Are we caught up in life? Or are we being attentive to what God is saying? And so with this in mind, um, and just our current day and age, and like we talked about a little earlier, we have election coming up, and it started to stir a lot of thoughts in me, um, considering these things. I've had different people reach out recently asking about what we're going to say about elections, what we're going to say about um, politics, what we're going to say about all sorts of things. It's, very, it's a very constant conversation. It's a good conversation, things that has caused me to consider, and that passage out of that is the Shema, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the inverse of that feels like what tends to happen is to love myself at the expense of my neighbor. And how often does that indeed happen? Instead of loving my neighbor as myself, I love myself at their expense. And it got me thinking about different um, passages throughout scripture where they talked about the times and they talked about what was going on and how they addressed it. It got me thinking about um, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. It got me th thinking about Daniel. It got me thinking about Esther. And it got me thinking about these people that had difficult situations they lived in, in places that were not their home, and what did they do? We are here in America. This is not your home. If you call yourself a believer in Christ Jesus, your home is the kingdom of God, and it is to come. It's not realized yet, but it is here, it is coming, it will be. What do you do while you're waiting? How do we make the best use of our time? How do we live in this place? How do we walk that out in a biblical manner in which God desires us to do? How do we address what's going on? How do we address, how do we walk through this? I won't, it got me thinking about this idea. Um, Chuck brought up the phrase the other day because he's going to be preparing some messages on this. Biblical stewardship. How do we handle the things that don't belong to us? 
I'm going to give you a cat, the, all the categories of the things that don't belong to you out of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. What belongs to you? Absolutely nothing. What are you doing with the things you've been given that don't belong to you? This is stewardship. A steward isn't an owner. They're the ones who care for someone else's things. We're caring for God's things. We're caring for God's people. We've been put in this place for this time with this particular opportunity. That's the story of Esther in chapter four. It says, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Esther was one of the Israelites. They were, in, they were taken out to Babylon. She ends up becoming queen. She's in such a privileged, amazing position. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Mordecai is actually a part of her father's house. He's a part of her family. He's trying to encourage her to do the right thing. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's a great privilege to be in the king's house. You're in America. You are in the king's house. You have more privilege and opportunity and just giftings in the land of abundance than in any other place in this world. You're in the king's house. And it's very easy to not. To not do whatever you want to do or whatever you don't want to do. Because you are in the land of abundance. You are in the land of a choice. And that in itself is a privilege. If there are any here that actually immigrated here, they understand that it's not your right to be here. You got here because, for most of us, because you were born here. You didn't do anything. But you reap the benefits therein. And so I wanted to encourage with a few things as we approach this week, as we approach our lives in general, biblical kingdom ideals that should embody us. We live in the land of plenty, the land of ease. It should never become the land of laziness. I would encourage you at some point to just Google search Bible and sluggard and see what it has to say about people that are lazy. They're deemed worse off than the fools. And remember, if you remember from far back, that definition of fool is godless scum. Laziness should never be a part of what we do and the choices we make. We, there should not be this mindset of, well, if I don't have to, I'm not going to. It's a lot of work. I don't really feel like it. The mindset of, well, I'll do something as long as I get something out of it. If I'm not going to get anything out of it, I, why bother wasting my energy on it? I don't have to. It shouldn't become the land of entitlement. We shouldn't amongst us hear this phrase of, I deserve, I'm owed, and this one is going to upset some people, it's my right. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about the rights that you have as a citizen of this place. I'm not talking about your right to a spare, and a spare fair and speedy trial. I'm not talking about your right to travel. I'm not talking about your right to worship where you please and how you please. I'm talking about the strange and 
very confusing things that are becoming, this is my right. It's feeling more and more, if I want it, it's my right now. You know, it's actually a thing. It's my right to high-speed internet. That's becoming a thing in some places. It's my right to a cell phone. I have to be able to make phone calls. You're going to pay for it. That's already a thing. It's my right to dispose of you if you're inconvenienced, even to the point of death. That's already a thing. It should not be named among us. This should be the land of peace. Politics can be so dividing, so separating, but we are called a people of peace, people to unite, to bring together. I have found when I talk to two reasonable people, I don't care which side of the aisle they're on, if they're reasonable, not extreme, reasonable as the majority of people are, if they would simply listen for half a second, they'd realize they want the same things. They simply have different methods of going about it. And perhaps we could have a productive conversation if we could take our fingers out of our ears for a minute to hear what someone else might have to say. Are we seeking peace or division? Are we letting the loudest voices on the far ends decide what's going on and decide what we're going to think? Or are we seeking peace and pursuing it? Are we praying for leaders, those in high places, that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives? Are we doing something with the privilege you have of being here to make sure that happens? Democracy is not a right. It's not even a biblical value. Do you know what the government that God set up is? This is a kingdom. A kingdom has a king, and that king is God. He is sovereign, he is Lord of Lord, king of kings, and he makes all the rules, and he takes no input. <laughs> and I encourage you not to gripe against the Lord. Go read the Exodus account. When they went into the desert and they started complaining, it did not end well for them. God is the king, and you absolutely, 100%, get no say. He is Lord. But here, in the privileged time you have, you do. Such an incredible privilege. But with the privilege comes responsibility. As a follower of Christ, to be well-informed in what you do and to look at it through a biblical lens. What does God want you to do with your life? That encompasses how you vote. That encompasses how you pray. That encompasses how you reflect yourself out into this world during this time. Do you seek peace and pursue it? Do you actually stand for what's right in your world? Do you steward well what God has given you? I'm never, ever going to tell you what to think because you are intelligent godly people, but I will always expect you to be intelligent, godly people. We will expect you to walk that out. I will teach you what the Word of God says to the best of my ability. Every elder here will do just that. But when you make your decisions, when you make your choices, you need to put them through what the Bible says, not just what's convenient, not just what works best for me, not just what's as easy. Things are not going to be getting 
any easier. They will only be harder. They will only get worse. But that doesn't mean you don't just go, oh, well. How do we steward what God has given us? Now, within this, within these conversations, I've had a lot of people give me a lot of resources. And we don't put things out front. We don't paste them on everybody. We don't send them out through our email list. But if you don't feel well-informed, I will give them to you. You can email me, joseph.more at westsideinfo.com, and I'll give you the information. Information, not simply vote this way. Being well-informed is understanding what you're doing. Not simply, I'm going to pick this guy because of some undisclosed reason, but I'm up here, so trust me. That does not honor your intelligence. But if you want resources, we've been given some, I've vetted through them, I'd be happy to share them with you. And you can email me before Tuesday, hopefully, because it's gonna, it's, it takes a while. This is not something that is just going to be done in an hour. It's going to take some time to get yourself well informed. Out of Matthew 25, 14 through 30, is a story that Jesus tells. It's a parable about a master who leaves, and he gives his servants talents, big bags of money, and he expects them to care for them, to be responsible with them. The first two servants multiply them. They go out, and they get more using what they've been given. They advance the kingdom of God, because the master is God, you are the servants, what are you doing with what you've been given? They do something with it. They make steps forward. They have an increase. But the last servant does nothing. They do no harm. They lose nothing, but they add nothing. So the first two servants, when the master comes back, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The last servant that didn't do anything with what they were given, they just bided their time, waited it out till the master came back. It's a very different story. At the very end of the passage says, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he who will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not saying voting, elections, politics is, the result, is this, but it's part of your life. You're here. You can't escape that you're here right now. We can't ignore the things we don't like because they're not fun. They're not. They're so divisive. It's so challenging to bring people together on them, but we don't ignore it because of that. How do we shine God's light through that? How do we let our good works be seen so that God can be glorified through this? It's a part of your life. What are you doing to steward the things God has given you? As we go into our passage today, we're going to be reading about people that did not steward what they've been given well. They mistreated the things of God. They mistreated one another. And they're going to, they're going to face some very dire consequences from it. We didn't go through Genesis 5, but there's a couple things that are actually important that I want to capture that it's set up for this time. Genesis 5 covers creation of Adam through Noah. That is, if you didn't add it up, 1,656 years. And I want to show you how long that is. 1,656 years. 
1,656 years. If we don't pay attention to those things we think are boring, those lists of names, we miss that. It's so much time. So much time that was given to this people to listen to God, to repent, to return, to do something with what God has given them, and they continued on their way. If people lived to be exceedingly old, they had a long time to think about this. They were 900 plus years old. I thought, 900 plus years, that's a, that's a lot of people. That's a long time. How many people were there? Anybody ever wondered how many? I found some interesting equations for population growth. They're actually going to put it up there. I have a degree in math. I verified it. Um, I, walked, I walked it through. It all lines up. It's simple in the way that it only calculates births and deaths of natural causes. So that C represents how many couples each family would give birth to. We know throughout all time, birth rates have been about 50-50 man and woman, and you get more people when you have a couple. So <laughs> now, keeping that in mind, I went conservative on all my numbers. So I said eight people. They lived exceedingly old. They had at least eight children. That's four couples each. Now, how many generations there are, which is the N is 16 and a half generations. I measured a generation to be 100 years because of how old they were. Right now, we don't get very old. A generation is only about 20 years. The D is how many generations people would normally live for. Well, 900 plus, that's nine generations thereabouts. Very conservative with the numbers. If that were the case, only eight kids per family, natural deaths, that's 22.9 billion people. Now, that is not the only way people die. And this time is full of exceeding violence against one another. So when we count for homicide, we count for suicide, we count for disease, we count for um, infant mortality, when we count for um, death in childbirth, we have to make adjustments. That's a much more complicated equation. So on a very conservative level, I guesstimated it to be around 2 billion people alive during this time. It's not a small number. It's not a small thing. It's not flippant what God's doing here. We only have 8 billion people on the earth right now. Disease has wiped out large amounts of us many, many times. It's a lot of people here. It's a lot of families. And it's a big statement when there's only one righteous person on the planet. There should be weight in that. It wasn't taken lightly. And that God doesn't wipe out any of the righteous people who remain. Um, one of the two people in the Bible that never died is in this account. His name is Enoch. In Genesis 5, verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The second person is Elijah. He's taken up in the whirlwind. Two people out of all the billions of people that have ever lived didn't die. It's happened. I wouldn't bank on it. Unless Jesus comes back and he raptures us all at the same time, you're probably going to taste death. It's not something I look forward to. 
And this is what we have. We have all these people. What's interesting, the year of the flood is the year when the last righteous person died. That's when God let everything go. Which leads us to Genesis 6. We're talking talking about depravity and discipline. When we ask the question, what have you done with what does not belong to you? And how are you expecting God to respond? With depravity will come discipline. It may not be in the timing that we think of, but we're not God. God is patient and he is kind and he does not enjoy the death of anyone, but seeks that all should repent and return to him. Of Hebrews 12, it says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is not meant to be pleasant. I think that's one thing in America that we've grown soft in. We are so comfortable, we do not deal with pain or discomfort well. We just don't. But when discipline comes along, it's not going to be pleasant. When difficult things come along, they're not going to be pleasant. We need to have a mindset for that. We need to have a mindset of enduring faithfulness. You don't have to endure if something isn't hard. Psalm 94 says, Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. If you're wondering about these days and these times and these difficulties, and God, where are you? How can you let these things happen? What is going on? Understand you have a patient God, and our timing is not his timing. And discipline will come. And honestly, I pray you're not here when it happens. It, it won't be good. When we read about all the accounts of discipline within the Bible, it's terrifying. At Genesis 6, one says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh His days shall be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, they'll be back. When the sons of God came to the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Start out chapter 6 with a what? (laughs) Strange and awful real quick. Um, It's a big rabbit hole that I'm not going to dive into this morning. I will give you the surface level response and then I'm going to pitch this to the experts. These, there are three interpretations for the sons of God. The first one I have the strongest leanings towards personally is that they are spiritual beings. They are the fallen, I won't even necessarily say angels because angels are messengers and there's more than just angelic spiritual beings. 
Um, the, the backing for this comes out of Psalm 82, when God is speaking to the divine council, talking to those that are supposed to be doing things that they're not. In Peter, he talks about the um, beings that fell from their positions of authority. We also talk about it in Jude. Spiritual beings doing naughty things. The second idea is the corrupt, that's three, corrupt rulers, actual people people that have claimed some sort of tie to divinity. It's not uncommon at all. It's what a lot of kings and emperors have done to give themselves legitimacy and try to keep people from assassinating them. You see this in Egypt with Pharaoh. You see it in the Japanese emperor, the Chinese emperor, the Incan emperor, the Nepalese kings, and there's one more. No, I got all those. And Caesar for a little bit, yes. Not all of them did, though. That one was intriguing. And then the third interpretation, these are the sons of Seth, of his lineage, the righteous line. And so they get categorized as sons of God because they're righteous rather than sons of man or the unrighteous line of Cain. I I have a hard time leaning towards the the latter two because they don't explain the Nephilim. How regular old people had giant monstrosities for children that were ferocious, heroic figures of their times. There's only two accounts for them in the Bible, here and Numbers 13, when they're talking about the descendants of the Nephilim, the still giant people, the sons of Anak, the ones where we get Goliath. So, that's all we know of this on its briefest sense. If you are curious and you'd like to dive much deeper, I would encourage you to go read Dr. Michael Heiser's work. He has the spiritual realm, or spirit, unseen realm and... Supernatural, thank you. Though supernatural is easier to read than the unseen realm. If you're curious on that, he's the resident expert right now. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's always difficult to come across a passage talking about the Lord regretting something and asking the question, how is it possible that the Lord could regret anything when he knows what's going to happen? He makes all of his choices in advance. It's what we came across when we read 1 Samuel 15 together. And he's talking about he regretted making Saul king. And the issue here is that Ancient Hebrew and English are not a one-to-one language. There's not a perfect English word for every Hebrew word. So we have to look at the whole word to really get the emphasis of the meaning and look at the rest of the passage. That word regretted can mean regret, to be sorry, to console oneself, to comfort. It's talking about this intense feeling of grief and sorrow. And I want you to consider for a moment, knowing something will happen does not necessarily make it any easier to go through. Every one of you here either has or will have experienced the loss of someone around you. Some of you will be the last and you will experience the loss of everyone around you. Does knowing that will happen make it any easier to live through? Will it make it any less sorrowful, any less full of grief, any less painful, knowing it will happen. 
God knew it was going to happen, that doesn't mean he felt good about it. It's within his plan for humanity that this has to be walked out, but it doesn't feel good walking through it. Out of the New American Commentary, it says, God's response of grief over the making of humanity, however, is not remorse in the sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. Our verse shows that God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error. It's what man has made of himself. Sorrow over the choices of your children. Knowing they will make bad choices does not make it easier to live through. These are the generations of Noah. It's a very abrupt change, particularly in how we're going through the passage. This is the third time we've seen an abrupt change like this. The first time says, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. The second time is, these are the generations of Adam. And the third time, right now, these are the generations of Noah. They mark a new thing happening, an important thing, a big thing, something we should pay attention to. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Corruption, 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 violence, violence. The repetition is there for a purpose. We need to understand it was an awful place to live in. It had grown terrible the evil had grown too great. And within this, Noah is deemed righteous and blameless. And I wondered for a moment, how did he do that? How do we normally determine whether or not someone is righteous and blameless? How would you make that determination in your life right now? If you looked at somebody, you looked at their life, what would, how would you say they're righteous and blameless? What would you compare it to? I would say the majority of us would compare it to this wonderful book we've been given. We compare it to God's word, God's law, everything that's been said therein. The thing that does not exist in any sense at the time of Noah. All Noah has is a collection of stories of his fallen family. People that have failed and grown more violent and more awful and more evil day by day by day. That's what Noah has. How is it that he was righteous and blameless? How is it truly that anyone can be righteous and blameless? That's the third thing that listed there. He walked with God. How can anybody truly be righteous and blameless only by the work of God? Right now, it's through the work of the cross of what Jesus Christ did in it for every single one of you, that he went and died for you to cover your sins by his sacrifice, that you may be with him for the rest of your days. Not that the sacrifice was made and then you can go be whoever you want to be for the rest of your life and good on you. No. It's so you can be with him. You can be with God. 
Noah was righteous because he believed in God. He listened to what was written on his heart, the law of God written into every single person on this earth to be able to decide, will I love my neighbor as myself or will I love myself at the expense of my neighbor? We will make that choice each and every day. And it's as simple as that. Will you honor God with everything? There are two things it all hangs on. Will you honor God with everything? Will you love your neighbor as yourself? We don't need a giant codex. This helps us with the specifics. This helps us with the nuance of life, but it all boils down to those two things. Which is why when the Bible says there is no excuse for anyone. When we live in this day and age right now, we've never, they've never heard about Jesus. They've never read the Bible. How can they be judged? Because God has written his law in everyone's heart. Noah had nothing. He walked with God. He acknowledged the law written on his heart. He did not love himself at the expense of his neighbor. He chose sacrifice. He chose endurance. He's 500 years old. Could you imagine living for that long, seeing it go worse and worse and worse and worse? You only have to live 80, maybe 90 years on this earth and endure it. He had to endure for 500 years and remain faithful. And all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. It had been a long, long time. But God is patient, God is faithful. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I have always struggled with that last line. Anyone else struggle with that last line? How could the iniquity be cast on the children? What have they done? And I read it this week, and I put it into the context of our passage. They're all there. At the same time, they're all alive together. They're all wicked. They're all violent. They're all corrupt. God doesn't punish the innocent. It's not something God does. These generations aren't innocent people. They're not people that have turned and mended their ways. They're people that chose to see the punishment and still spit in God's face. When you read the blessings and the curse out of the law, when God says, all of these amazing things will happen if you would but listen, your life will be paradise on earth the way it was meant to be if you would but listen. But if you don't listen, I'll discipline you this way. And if you continue to not listen, this way, and this way, and this way, and it's increasing, it's why aren't you listening? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord your God is one. We don't listen. And discipline comes. After the flood, there's going to be, we call it the table of nations. All the nations of the earth are going to be established. And there's a few very specific ones. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Canaan, and Israel that are established at this time. And every single one of those is forewarned. And there are 
biblical prophecies against all of those that if you don't listen, there will be punishment. And 800 years from the flood, through the Exodus story, Egypt is the first one disciplined this way. And if you actually read through all of those different plagues, each one is a spit in the face of one of the Egyptian gods. You have no power. You have no power. You have no power. Only El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who knew when to say enough has power on this earth. And then, about 100 years after that, God punishes Canaan using the Israelites. And they're warned, you need to listen. 1,700 years after the flood, Israel doesn't listen. He punishes them with Assyria. Assyria, who had repented before and is now not repenting again, about six years after this, gets punished using Babylon. About 60 years after that, Babylon gets punished by Persia. God gives everyone time, immense amounts of time to repent, to return, to listen, and he will relent and he will welcome you back with open arms, with love as his child. That is the entire account of Jonah. When he goes to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the worst place imaginable at the time, and they repent and God relents of the disaster and he turns from his wrath, and he embraces them as his children. That's the story again and again and again. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. That's as specific as it gets. Now, it's helpful to know what a cubit is. It's this length, from your elbow to the tips of your fingers. And those are all the same, right? Yeah. <laughs> they average between 18 inches to around 21 half inches, unless you're a Nephilim and it's about two feet long. <laughs> but, Conservatively, there's a group that's actually made a life-size replica of this. Then you can actually go and visit it in Kentucky. This is called the Ark Encounter. Conservatively, it's 450 feet long. It's one and a half football fields. 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. That's over four stories tall. It's ginormous. It's about as big as a wooden structure can get because there's only so much tensile strength that wood can endure before it snaps under the weight. It's about as large as it can possibly be. It's immense! And it took a long time. There's nothing in the Bible saying like this just kind of happened. From Genesis 5, Noah is 500 years old. When he is sealed up in the ark, he's 600 years old. It's 100 years. This took a long time to follow out God's plan with the tools he had at the time and three sons. <laughs> For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. 
two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So the first thing we see is the decreation occurring. When we read in Genesis 1, there were three things that were in the way of life existing on this earth. First of all, we needed light. We needed that life-giving light. We needed land. So we needed to get rid of the waters that were covering everything. And we needed food in order to exist. And so all the plants were grown. Those three things took place before God started creating the fish, the animals, the people. Now, that being considered... He's decreating all of this. He's going to take away the light by covering the entire earth in clouds and raining upon it. He's taking away the land by flooding everything and completely covering all of it. He's taking away all the plants by flooding all the earth and covering all of it. He's wiping the slate clean. And then he brought two of every kind, which is an interesting thing because we look out in the world and go, there are a lot of things on this earth. And that's a big boat, but it's not that big a boat. How did that work out? And so I'm actually going to read an excerpt here from the Ark Encounter where they've done a lot of study on this. Ask the question, was every species on the Ark? No. Species is a term used in the modern classification system. The Bible uses the term kind. The created kind was a much broader category than the modern term of classification or species. So what is a kind? So the idea of canine versus poodle. Canine covers any dog out there from a wolf to a schnauzer. It's all of them. So in order to represent that kind, you just need two wolves. So the big question is, well, how many kinds are there? Because that will really show us how much was on the boat. So here we are. Recent studies estimate the total number of living and extinct kinds of land animals and flying creatures to be about 1,500. With our worst-case scenario approach to calculating the number of animals on the ark, this would mean that Noah cared for approximately 7,000 animals, which is completely feasible to fit on that boat with all their food for 120 days. It's not a fairy tale. It's not made up. It's not just something convenient to fit. This is an account of what actually happened. And it's a real specific account, too. And when we look through history and we look through what we're discovering, it continues to point to the accuracy of God's word. And Noah did all that was commanded of him. What is the result of that? What is the result of what, we, what happens when we do what God asks us to do? There's many encounters of Scripture of this taking place. Out of Exodus 40, this Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. The end of that passage is, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Deuteronomy 5, you shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land you shall possess. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, 
and then you will have good success. What is the result of following what God says? What is the result of walking with Him through your life? Is His presence in your life. Him being there with you and walking with you where there's life and there's prosperity and there's success and there's abundance in the way that God describes abundance, not the earthly way of describing abundance, the abundant life that God so desires for you. Out of Matthew 28, the great commandment. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen.